I'm Beth Bennett. This is How on Earth, the KGNU Science Show. Today is Tuesday, March 28, 2023. Coming up, I spoke with Professor William Penuel, an educator and curriculum designer of innovative STEM techniques at the School of Education here in Boulder. We begin with a look at some of the recent news in science. Last month on How on Earth, we had a discussion about artificial intelligence, which most people in news stories these days associate with the text-generative programs like ChatGPT. One subfield of artificial intelligence is machine learning, which is a technique that uses algorithms to automatically learn insights and recognize patterns from data, applying that learning to make increasingly better decisions, predictions, or models. Deep learning is a type of machine learning that uses large neural networks, which are programs that are modeled to function like a human brain to learn complex patterns and make predictions independent of human input. The goal is to have the computer teach itself what is relevant in a data set or perform a task without being explicitly programmed to do the task. Programs like ChatGPT and DALL-E use deep machine learning. Machine learning and neural networks also are used in scientific analysis of complex data sets, looking for underlying relationships and parameters, or suggesting equation models to describe the data. Two recent examples of such AI applications come from the field of astrophysics. One, finding the chemical origins of stars that formed billions of years ago, and the other, finding a better calculation to weigh clusters of galaxies. In a paper published last week in the Astrophysical Journal, researchers used machine learning and supernova nucleosynthesis models to find that the majority of the second generation of stars formed in the universe were enriched by supernova from the first generation of stars. Previous studies have shown that elements in the universe like carbon, nitrogen, oxygen, iron, and other heavy atoms are produced in stars and then spread through space when those stars explode as supernova. But the first generation of stars born soon after the Big Bang did not contain such heavy elements. The second generation of stars contained only a small amount of heavy elements produced by the first stars. To understand the universe in its infancy, we need to understand these metal-poor stars. Using machine learning to analyze elemental abundances in more than 450 extremely metal-poor stars, the researchers found that 68% of those stars have a chemical fingerprint consistent with enrichment by multiple previous supernova. The study provides evidence that the first generation of stars did not form mostly in isolation, but rather formed in small clusters so that their many supernova could sufficiently contribute to the heavy element enrichment of the next generation of stars. That paper is titled, Machine Learning Detects Multiplicity of the First Stars 
in stellar archaeology data. The second study from another recent paper used machine learning to uncover a better way to estimate the mass of giant clusters of galaxies. The AI program used a method called symbolic regression to discover that by just adding a simple term to an existing equation, scientists can produce far better galaxy cluster mass estimates than they previously had been able to. But just having an equation isn't enough. More important is to understand the underlying physics of an equation, and the researchers were able to work backward from this AI-generated equation to find a physical explanation. They point out that people have been working on this problem for decades, but had not found this extra term that improved the models. Measuring the masses of galaxy clusters is important because understanding the universe requires knowing where and how much stuff there is. Galaxy clusters are the most massive objects in the universe. A single cluster can contain anything from hundreds to thousands of galaxies, along with hot gas and dark matter. The cluster's gravity holds these components together. Understanding such galaxy clusters, and particularly their total mass, is crucial to pinning down the origin and continuing evolution of the universe. That paper, published in The Proceedings of the National Academy of Sciences, is titled Augmenting Astrophysical Scaling Relations with Machine Learning, Application to Reducing the Sunyaev-Zeldovich flux mass scatter. For How on Earth, I'm Joel Parker. William Penuel designs and studies curriculum materials, assessments, and professional learning experiences for teachers in STEM education, especially in science. His work is beginning to focus more on cultivating compassion and dignity in schools and on promoting equitable collaboration in small group learning in STEM classrooms. Welcome to the show, Bill. I'm speaking to Bill Penuel, who is a faculty member in CU's School of Education, but he more um, saliently works at the Renee Crown Wellness Institute, which has a variety of different um, hats that it wears in the educational community that we're going to talk about today. So um, great to talk to you, Bill. Great to be here with you. So I know that from looking at the website, you have a background in developmental psychology, which probably segues into your interest in education and teaching methods. So can you tell us what you're doing now in terms of developing methods for STEM teaching? Sure, I'd be happy to. Uh, so a lot of my work right now focuses on developing a high school curriculum that's aligned to the next generation science standards that's going to be free and available to people by mid 2024. And it is deeply grounded in our understanding of how people learn science. 
grounded in a vision that was articulated in a National Academies report called a framework for K-12 science education. And that framework really is grounded in actually not just what we know about how people learn, but also about the work that scientists and engineers actually do in the world. So the framework emphasizes that students don't just learn about science ideas, but they figure out science ideas using science and engineering practices that approximate what scientists do, as well as cross-cutting concepts that run across science. So it's a very different vision of science. Because I think this is so important and so critical to learning science. And I, when I was teaching science, I hated that there was a focus on memorization. And I tried to get away from that because, you know, as a practicing scientist, I thought, I don't memorize anything. Don't do much of that at all, right? No, I mean, who would, who would A, waste their time and B, take a chance that you might have it wrong? You would just look it up. And so I'm so delighted to hear that this kind of approach is moving into science. And I bet you're seeing that science students like science a lot better. We do actually monitor that and check and definitely students find a ton of interest in the kinds of uh, activities that we're doing. And it's really just a very different experience for teachers as well. Uh, so one of the things that we do is that the way we get into this is by anchoring units of instruction in what we call phenomena. Phenomena are observable events in the world that we can use our science ideas and practices to explain. Some of our units are also anchored in design challenges where students are using engineering practices to be and their science knowledge to be able to solve as problems in the world. And one of the things that's really compelling for students is that we make these relevant and interesting to them. How do we know that they're relevant and interesting to them? Well, we actually survey young people whenever we go out to design a new unit. We field a big survey of students from across the country, generally get between 800 and 1,000 responses to these surveys. And then we look at the data. We disaggregate it by race and by gender, by where kids live. And we really make every effort to find phenomena that are compelling and interesting, especially to students who we say are owed an education debt. That is uh, BIPOC students, women and gender non-binary students, um, students whose first language is something other than English. And we look for those, why? Because those are the students who are most marginalized in STEM. They're most pushed out of STEM. So we try to prioritize the things that are interesting to them. And when you talk about, well, why do we do that? There is a really strong evidence base to suggest the importance of interest and relevance in sustaining folks' attention in uh, academic pursuits. And science, as you know, uh, as a practicing scientist, scientist teacher, science teacher, requires a lot of persistence. So it really matters that kids are interested in the kinds of phenomena and problems that we present to them. So yeah, I think that if you give people something that's relevant to them, they will, of course, be interested and make a conscious decision. And I think that decision-making process is really important in terms of tracking it down and following it and pursuing it and doing the work that that they need to do to you know be either a successful student or a su successful scientist absolutely and there's a lot of work that 
the teacher has to do to maintain that interest and also that the curriculum has to do. Um, this is not discovery learning, uh, but what we do is really guide students inquiry. And the way that we do that is uh, on the very first uh, lesson where we present a phenomenon or a problem for students to solve, students begin exploring this phenomena or problem and they generate some initial models or explanations for what's going on. And then they come up with a set of questions that they want to ask uh, in order to be able to solve the sort of puzzle that's presented to them, example. So in our genetics unit in biology, for example, students get uh, the opportunity to look at a whole bunch of maps of different states about incidences of cancer and also who survives cancer. And they start to see a lot of unusual patterns. There's a lot of geographic patterns. There's a lot of differences. There's a lot of gaps between who gets cancer and who survives from cancer. And so the unit is organized around this big question about who gets cancer and why. But students come up with their own questions that they need to answer along the way in order to come up with an answer to that big question. And as curriculum designers, what we do is we try to anticipate those questions. And we don't just guess. We try out many versions of this first lesson with real students until we kind of get it right, until we get questions that actually invite students to really think about genetics and think about the environmental determinants of cancer and also begin to think about social determinants of health. And so once we get a set of questions arising from how we presented that phenomena that we think will open up to the core disciplinary core ideas of that unit, then we start to build a unit out. <clears throat> and Again, this is really drawing on our best understanding of how we actually can motivate students learning. There's a very robust set of findings about what students learn and how in terms of whether we present them with a set of ideas and then ask them to apply those ideas in a real situation versus the way we do it is present them with a design challenge or a phenomenon that creates a need to know that then once you actually present ideas to students, then they have a sense of how that knowledge is going to be useful. And okay, so this latter approach has been shown to work a lot more effectively than this teach than apply approach. Right, right. Yeah, top down, bottom up kind of difference. So I'm intrigued because that's a that's a, a great example. I love the idea of um, differential distribution of cancer um, data, because I think just about everybody has probably had experience of a friend or relative with cancer. And right. so that's something that is, of course, relevant. And then you come up with some um, approaches or the students, is it that the students generate approaches and then you assess how useful those approaches are and then turn around and um, and replant them in successive generations of students? So what happens is, is that students will generate a bunch of questions uh, in, and put it on a driving question board on that first day about questions they need to be able to answer this bigger question about who gets cancer. So they come up with questions about, well, are they caused all caused by genes? And if so, uh, how so? What is cancer they come up with? Uh, why are there differences between these different states in terms of who gets cancer? Those are the questions that then become the fo foci of lessons that we've already developed, 
where they get to actually go into deeper investigations. They might look at some more map data. They might uh, go in and explore the genetics of cancer. They have a lesson where they learn about what's going on uh, when cancer cells are created. So that's how the lessons unfold. So we provide them with experiences that help them answer their own questions. Does okay. that make sense? Yeah, yeah, that's fantastic. If you're just tuning in, I'm Beth Bennett, and you're listening to How on Earth, the KGNU Science Show. I'm speaking with Professor William Penuel of the CU Boulder School of Education. We're talking about his work developing new curriculums for K-12 students in STEM. So I'm curious, I think that this model could be applied like over a wide range of ages. Do you, in fact, use that for, say, middle school, high school, and then you just um, fine tune the approaches for different age students? Open Syed is a K-12 initiative, and there's a full middle school uh, curriculum uh, that's out already using this approach. And we're in the middle of developing high school and the elementary curriculum development process is just now beginning. But absolutely, yeah, the same approach, broad approach is being used, tailored to different age groups. And I'm also intrigued by the focus of the Institute on Wellness and Compassion. And it seems to me that by tying in those kinds of approaches and skills that that would facilitate learning, I mean, from so many different dimensions that um, students would feel more comfortable, more accepted, more able to express curiosity, but just also, you know, the physiological benefits of um, feeling part of a group and feeling accepted is, and is that something that different people in the program, um, act, in your program that develop these um, teaching approaches actively pursue? So one of the things that supports the work of attending to the social emotional well-being of students and also to their sense of belonging in the open syed program is a set of community agreements that are established mm -hmm. early in the year mm -hmm. that pertain to how we want to treat each other as members of the classroom that we want to treat each other respectfully equitably we want to um, be committed to our community so that students help each other learn and we always want to be moving our science thinking forward and teachers have the opportunity to introduce those to students, have them reflect on them, and also revisit them as appropriate. There are also a lot of social and emotional supports. You mentioned that lots of people have an experience of cancer. Well, that can actually be triggering in a classroom. Mm -hmm. And so we provide a lot of support for the teacher in our curriculum materials to have the kinds of conversations for students to be able to make a safe conversation about cancer so that it's relevant perhaps but also doesn't ask them to uh, share about their own personal experiences if those are too difficult for them okay okay yeah because i saw in um the synopsis of your work that one focus is the classroom culture and then there's also the teaching methods and so you know it, of course there's there's a real dynamic interplay between the two but have you developed different strategies for um, training teachers as well as um, teaching modalities for the students? Yes, the, the work in the Crown Institute focuses less on STEM education and more on preparing teachers to become more compassionate leaders within mm -hmm. their schools. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And so that work actually is grounded in a certificate program that is offered through the School of Education at CU. And the 
Crown Institute uh, led the development for that work in collaboration with Boulder Valley teachers, as well as teachers from Northeastern Colorado. And the focus is on supporting compassion and dignity in schools. Um, this four core sequence is offered online to teachers asynchronously first, and then we have a capstone in the summer for the last course. And it has a combination of approaches. So we actually teach a number of contemplative practices related to mindfulness, kindness, and compassion to teachers. We also engage them in inquiry uh, into texts of various kinds and also into their own interactions uh, around care and critical care in relationships uh, with students, with other colleagues, and with parents. Uh, teachers uh, keep field notes of their own interactions and explore mm -hmm. where might compassion be more applied here in this situation, or they reflect on opportunities to apply it to new situations. And in this particular course, also at the end, individual teachers or teachers who form a team at a school come up with an action plan for how they can bring about more compassionate school practices and policies in their mm -hmm. schools. So that's the approach that we take broadly in the context of that work at Crown. Within the Open Syed work, a lot of our work centers on uh, focus is focused on preparing people to use the, the curriculum. And a big strategy there we use is something we call student hat. So we take teachers through the curriculum as if they were students. And we do that for a couple of reasons. One is this way of teaching is so different. Uh, from how they've usually taught this idea of we're going to figure out the science together uh, is so different that this really helps them give a sense of it. But it also creates a, an empathy uh, for students and their own experience of difficulty in trying to pose and answer questions themselves using science and engineering. Okay, so great. That's an approach. So I'm I'm curious how well this is accepted in the school districts. Is it are you finding it tough to get it accepted or is it are people pretty open to it? There is a lot of excitement about the approach because it's one of the few sets of instructional materials that are aligned to our new standards and here in Colorado, but actually in 45 other states in the District of Columbia that have adopted these new standards. And so the standards people recognize, wow, they're really asking something very different of us to engage kids in approximations of science and engineering practices, for example. So I think there's a lot of excitement and there's a learning curve for sure. But over time, teachers get really excited about this approach because they see their students response. Uh, they uh, many are enlivened by really transforming their practice in the ways that this curriculum invites and enables them to do. What really makes a difference, though, is that they participate in sustained professional learning wor uh, workshops that we offer. And not just once, but each time they in, in, implement and, and learn about a new unit, they get a, a kind of refresher, but also a deepening of their understanding of different aspects of the curriculum. And that's a really core part of our design. The curriculum aren't, materials aren't designed to be used on their own without that uh, supportive learning context for teachers. Uh, so that's that's really important for them liking the curriculum at the end of the day. Sure. Yeah. Well, as a former science teacher myself, I'm really excited to hear this. And um, I'm definitely going to post some links to your website and to your work 
on our show website. Wonderful. And I know we're, we're close to being out of time. Is there anything else that you want to say that you think we haven't touched on about the significance of what you're doing? I'm really excited about this work in part in science education, not only for the breadth of vision, but also because these materials are free. And so they really provide something that's accessible to a wide range of people uh, across the country and in schools and districts with very low textbook budgets. Um, so I'm really excited <laughs> that this makes science learning accessible to a wider variety of people. Yeah, that's fantastic. Well, like I said, I will link to your website and encourage people to um, check out some of the resources that you have available there. Thanks Wonderful. so much for talking today, Bill. Thanks so much, Beth. I appreciate being here. That was Dr. William Pennywell of the CU Boulder School of Education. We talked about how he's developing materials and curriculums to engage students at all levels in science. He also focuses on compassion and mindfulness in education, racial equity, and in creating spaces that affirm gender and sexual diversity in STEM. A link to his website as well as that for the Crown Wellness Center in the show notes. That's all for this edition of How on Earth. I'm currently the executive producer and I produce this week's show. The story on AI came from Joel Parker. Shannon Young engineered the show. Our theme music was written and produced by Josh Cutler. Additional music by Ludwig von Beethoven. Visit our website at howonearthradio.org to find past episodes, extended interviews, and you can subscribe to our podcast through iTunes and follow us on Facebook and Twitter. Questions or comments, call the KGNU comment line at 303-447-9911. For How on Earth, the KGNU Science Show, I'm Beth Bennett.